0: On February 4th, the University of Michigan regents enacted the Felony Disclosure Policy, which requires faculty and staff to report any felony charges or convictions they have received. Although the policy was supposedly intended to increase safety on campus, controversy quickly developed around the powers it granted to the university regents. Students, faculty, and organizers called out the university's new ability to act on criminal accusations without due process and worried about the impact of bias on their response to reported felonies. This conversation has grown, with students from Michigan behind bars and others speaking at regents' meetings in opposition of the policy. Today, we'll talk to two student organizers from Michigan Behind Bars. By having a policy at a higher institution like U of M that really
1: is saying, hey, like we want to know and also we're going to punish you for having stuff on your record, it really ends up just validating these systems that really are based in
2: white supremacy and uh, you know, discrimination. They keep saying safety, they keep saying we need to know, and they keep saying this will not impact people. But we know that it already has impacted people. And we know that safety
0: is not something that is one of their concerns. And an instructor from the Prison Creative Arts
3: Program. And that's what disturbs me. More than anything is the initial fact that you didn't care to ask anyone and that your policy basically makes it there's this secret group of people we don't know who make decisions and determinations and don't have to report or explain those decisions or determinations.
0: We talk with these people to better understand what the real implications of the felony disclosure policy are.
2: My name is Hannah French. I am a senior in LSA studying anthropology and creative writing with a minor in community action and social change. And I'm an organizer with UMICH Behind Bars.
1: My name is Hwayon Pham. I'm a fifth year senior in the residential college. I'm majoring in social theory and practice with a concentration on implicit racial bias, and I also have minors in music and also community action social change, and I'm an organizer with UMitch Behind
0: Bars. Thank you so much for being here with us. Um, So in your own words, can you describe what the felony disclosure policy is at the University of Michigan? So the University of
1: Michigan just passed a policy, the specific name is SPG 601.38, and it is in effect right now and it requires all faculty, staff, student employees, volunteers, and also any visiting scholars who've been charged with or convicted of a felony to report it to the university within one week of the charge or conviction.
2: And that policy went into effect about, I think, February 2nd, so anything that happens after that date or has already happened needs to be reported.
0: Great, okay, and so what are your thoughts on why they decided to enact this blanket policy?
2: The administration has three main talking points for this policy. One is that this policy is not going to impact those who have past records. Uh, Two is that it won't result in someone automatically losing their job uh, should they report. And then three is that the school should know about things that are happening on its campus in order to address safety for students and staff and visitors. Um, Honestly, we could sit here and debunk all three of those things. I will just briefly start with saying, it's a little, I think, tone deaf for the university to say that it's not going to impact people with past records, because it already is. When you're talking about, maybe if you're not talking about charges that have happened since February 2nd, you're still talking about the emotional trauma people being re-triggered, people feeling unsafe on this campus as students, as staff, as visitors. You're talking about the fact that UMICH has just passed a policy that will prevent diversity from entering our halls because people do not want to come to a school that is going to target them if they are from over-policed communities. Um, And then the second thing is that University of Michigan doesn't do things in response to allegations that are happening even when they know about it. So I think that it's a little absurd for them to claim that this is for the safety of students and staff and that they need to play the sort of role of big brother in hyper surveilling all of our campus in order to identify things that are happening when there have been cases where they know things that are going on and don't act on it. It's not an issue of knowledge. This policy is not in response to the fact that we don't have enough knowledge about what's happening on this campus. Because the fact is we do have the knowledge. U of M runs background checks. U of M has the box on its application as to whether or not you've been convicted previously of a felony. The issue is not knowledge. The university knows things that are going on and it's not doing anything about them. Recently a lot of sexual assault allegations have come up against
1: people who have been working for U of M for a really long time. Um, And not only have those come up but the inaction of the university on the part of the survivors and the people who reported the cases has also been reported due to you know a lot of really great work by the daily. And so there has been a lot of pushback by the community of hey, something needs to be done about these cases. The university has a really bad sexual misconduct policy And really, um, you know, a lot of people are choosing not to report or choosing not to act because of the inaction of the university and because it's pretty widely known that our policy is really bad. And so they this is in part one of their strategies to make this entire system better. Um, But it, as we've said before, it really doesn't help with anything that's going on.
2: Are you taking a specific case and you're applying a very blanket solution to it? And honestly, to add to it more bluntly, I think they're just scared of litigation.
0: So it's kind of like a safety net for them in terms of... Right. When we're talking about
2: safety, it's safety for them, not for us.
0: Could you go into a little bit more on um, who it disproportionately affects? Yeah. So basically
1: when you are... So the policy, as we said before, is having if somebody is charged with something they need to report it within a week to the university and it really goes back to the entire idea of the entire systems of policing and the criminal justice system and communities that get over-policed are communities of color or low-income communities and that's where they're putting a lot of the police because there's this false idea of more policing means safety and what actually ends up happening is when there's more police in an area, that area gets gets even more crimes that are reported because the police end up reporting for small infractions or using stereotypes to write people down for doing crimes even when they're not doing anything. And so that ends up following them because it's on their record and it just gets them into the system earlier. And so by having a policy at a higher institution like U of M, that really is saying, hey, like we wanna know and also we're going to punish you for having stuff on your record, it really ends up just validating these systems that really are based in white supremacy and, uh, you know, discrimination.
0: There's a term, um, carceral state, which relates to how the new felony disclosure policy will have a disproportionate effect on certain groups of people. What is the carceral state and how is it related to what's happening at the university?
1: So when people talk about the carceral state, they're really talking about the formal and informal institutions of the criminal justice system. So, like prisons, the immigration detention, police forces, and other surveillance mechanisms. And this really, you know, all these, all of these play a part in um, discrimination um, to a certain degree, and they're all tied together, and they're all working hand in hand. So, the carceral state is sort of referring to all of these at the same time, and also referring to how they are interlinked with one another. So you know, the police are, in a certain sense, a propagation of this carceral state because the ways that they are policing um, through implicit racism and stereotypes, the way that they're kind of taught. You know, an example of this is, um, you know, police people will often patrol Ipsy for drugs even when they know that there haven't been more documented cases of people who do drug deals in Ipsy than other any other place. But, like, as you might presume, Ipsy is known to be a place with, potentially more people of color, potentially more income people. So then that place is getting more over-policed. And so that's just an example of how the discrimination that can be implicit actually
2: becomes put forth into what is now considered you know, standard policy. Yeah, and that's I think that's on the prevention side. And then if you're looking at the other aspect of the carceral state, literally what that means is prisons. Um, you can look at literally the populations of prisons if you've ever been inside one Um, I volunteer there weekly, and it is predominantly people of color. Um, Especially, I volunteer at a women's prison, and most of the women who are locked up, a lot of them have deep histories of trauma, deep histories of abuse. Some of them are incarcerated and have received their charges because of defense against their abuser. Um, And the way that we are prosecuting people in this country is punishment under the guise of healing. Yeah, which I think also goes
1: back to like even the policy itself and you know obviously like we don't believe that prisons should exist in general and I don't really believe that that actually helps to rehabilitate people at all but even if you sort of ignore that aspect or put it aside if you're thinking about exile from community and how a lot of the times, a lot of the way that we claim to be um, reforming people is actually just through taking them away from community. You're saying, like policies like this really expose how we don't allow people to re-enter the community even when they've like quote unquote done their time, which we still don't believe in. But it doesn't make, it just doesn't make sense that this policy would even have to be something that's put into effect. And I think it just goes back to how we innately know that The way that we punish people in this country is really unjust and unfair and
0: doesn't actually help anybody. With so much opposition, how is it that the policy actually became enacted then?
2: It's just the university has, for this policy in particular, a very opaque process of evaluation. They are not giving away how it is that they're going to decide how to handle Each case, they say, case by case basis. But what does that mean? And the truth is, is that they didn't consult with anybody, as far as we know, before they enacted this policy. We know for a fact they didn't consult with staff, um, and that was something that we heard at the regents meeting um, from a staff member. And we know that they didn't consult with the impacted community at all, um, and we know that they didn't consult with students. So in reality, nobody is for this thing except for the regents themselves. What is
0: the future of this policy? Is there any way for them to redact it? And what would that even look like? I believe the policy is not up for
2: vote again until 2021. So if nothing happens to it now, it remains in effect until then, and then I believe it would go up again for discussion and re-vote.
0: Was there any sort of public commentary session um, for people to express their concern about the policy? I was just going to say that I think it's
1: also really clear that even when we have these comment sections um, and public comment in front of the regents, it's clear the regents aren't listening to us. I feel like sometimes I'm a middle school teacher and the regents are 12-year-old kids who just got phones for the first time because they all sit there, stare at their phones, are texting the entire time that you're talking to them. And the only times that we've kind of noticed them listening are when other white men are speaking, which is very indicative, I think, of the fact that the regents are mostly white men as well.
3: Um, so my name is cozy Watts Jr. I am the managing editor of the Prisoner Creative Arts Projects Literary Review. I also co-teach two classes with Dr. Ashley Lucas—one in on North Campus called Theater and Incarceration, and the other in the RC called the Atonement Project.
0: Can you maybe go into why you decided to to join PCAP and like where, like, and what the uh, experience having to serve time in a correctional facility and Then going forward and teaching within PCAP outside of the correctional facility um, informed you on going into this process.
3: I just happened to be at an institution at Lapeer Correctional. I was trying to actually get into a workshop that they had a creative writing workshop there. Um, And but anyway, so I got in, and that changed everything. That was the first click in the knob, because this is the University of Michigan and they chose my writing to publish. So what that did was for me personally, it made me realize that my words were for something, something or someone or some purpose other than my own enjoyment. And it helped me find structure while inside because now I had something to look forward to. There was always a deadline coming up every year. So I had to have something prepared for that, right? And and, in the strangest and most beautiful way knowing I had that at this time made me utilize all the time before in a more productive way.
0: In your own words, can you describe what the felony disclosure policy is?
3: What it comes down to is it says that if you are charged or have a prior felony, you have to disclose the charge within a week or the conviction within a week. Um, It also says, if I'm not mistaken, that PhD students have to disclose uh, juvenile convictions, which is ridiculous. Um. So when someone before the age of adulthood of 18 or 17 depending upon what state, any convictions before that are considered juvenile convictions. Typically, juvenile convictions are not carried forth into adult life because the idea is that you were a juvenile, you were not of the culpable age, so therefore those records are often sealed. Um, sometimes they're not dependent upon situation and circumstance, but more times than not, they are. So to ask someone who was going to a Ph.D. program, to disclose that seems to have no relevance on the fact that they are going into postgraduate education. So Schlissel, I know, has said that, you know, they won't discriminate, and I thought it was ironic that he said this policy and the people in instituting it won't discriminate when, like, it's kind of impossible for you to be unbiased in a discretionary process, right? Especially the discretionary process, which is based on, like, um, classism and and basically overt, or or not overt, indirect racism. I mean, look look. at let's look at who's disproportionately affected by the criminal justice system, right? So you can't say, well, look, it's just a felony thing. And it's just, it just so happens that a bunch of these people are felons because in the system that puts them in a school to prison pipeline, And bu- but we're not meaning to make any of that happen, right? Like it's impossible to say that we're not gonna be, we're gonna be discretionary in a system that is discretionary based on bias. I made this in my region speech, I said something. Um, which was stark, right? But it was true. You know, I I made a connection. uh, So I made a connection to Jim Crow, right? So this policy in effect does what Jim Crow did. The difference was, right? Jim Crow and Jim Crow policies didn't say, didn't pretend to say, you know what? We're inclusive, we're progressive, we're forward thinking, we're about everyone. No, Jim Crow said, forget you, I don't want you here, you don't belong right at least they said and then say yeah we want you here we're just going to put up barriers to make it impossible for you to join Uh, yeah it carries that tradition forward right and that's not a tradition we want to carry forward right and it's not when a university of michigan should even like we shouldn't i think the thing that bothers me the most and tells me the most also is that we're even having this discussion in 2019 right i always so i'm always asked to speak at places, right, and it's funny because like the university has allowed me, I suppose, in hiring to use the university's name, right? Like I work at and teach at U of M, that's like a big deal, right? And they also use me because I seem to say, "Hey, look at what the university can do." But here's something I always try to let people know: I'm an anomaly, not because we're small in the number, but because we aren't looked at. Right, And that is the thing I always try to stress to people, like this is what what you get when you have policies like this. You don't get enough of quote unquote me's, right? And I ain't gonna say me's, you don't get better me's because you don't allow them to come. You don't allow the space for them to enter into.
0: I heard that you spoke at the regents meeting. Um, What were some of the points that you brought up at that meeting? I know you said that you were a little bit rushed with the three minute time limit. but what were you trying to convey to the regents and were they responsive at all?
3: Out of all the things that are worrisome about the policy it's the fact that the policy was instituted with no input from any of our experts on campus. Like if you want to put together a, fi- a policy dealing with felony disclosure or felony reporting of any type, as University of Michigan, you have all the expertise you need to know how to implement it so that it does not disproportionately affect people. and um what those effects may be regardless of how well you fashion a policy what the positive and negative outcomes may be the university did none of that the vast majority of people who are incarcerated come back home we become citizens you're going to see us everywhere whether you choose to or not you're going to see us and more times than not you're not going to know what you're seeing right unless you have some predisposition that makes you assume that someone who looks a particular way is this or someone that has a particular record is this which ironically is what the university is doing right with this policy you're saying well because you have this i somehow have to treat you differently under the guise of protecting the citizenry i am the citizenry
0: so that that's making me think of you know like why the regents aren't taking um people who've experienced prison life um like they're perspective into account when doing this and do you think it has something to do with just like the general societal view of people who have been to prison
3: i think one of the things um when you're trying to be what's what's the tag the phrase used or the word used today awoke um <laughs> right? i think when you're trying to be awoke it's active process because what you're trying to do is understand what it is that you are s- asleep on so i think that the regions are acting out of a place of obvious ignorance whether that ignorance be intentional or malicious or not, I won't go to say, I just look at what happens. So it's obvious ignorance, um, it's obvious misunderstanding, and I think there's obvious miscommunication between them and those who put them in those positions. And I think those three things, along with others, that are just too numerous to, uh, <laughs> to list right now, but that is what can allow, I think, people in power, especially the regions, to make a decision that to the obvious person who takes a second or two to look says, this isn't right, right? Because um, honestly, <laughs> here's the funny thing I often think about. I don't think the regions want to institute anything that's going to get backlash, right? I mean, if you're instituting a policy or a rule or a law, you don't want it to be contested. You want it to go into effect and things to keep going smoothly. So the fact that they instituted this thing, which is obviously wrong, it's obviously getting kicked back, to me shows that it was instituted in ignorance.
0: I wanted to just go back to the felony um, disclosure policy and um ask you like what the next steps are, like what did you bring to the table in your speech? And like, will it be up for reconsideration? I know Hannah had said that it won't until 2021, but what is what is the what will that time look like in between?
3: Um, I think that time in between is gonna be filled with a lot of us who already are in the know, getting more people to become knowledgeable. Um, and taking the steps that all citizens take when they're organized and know that, you know, the people who represent them have to make a change in policy. You know, we organize, we speak, we get the word out, we pressure those who we put in power to make the decisions that reflect us who are the, you know, the citizens. Um, So there'll be a lot of that in different ways, in different shapes, artists. I mean, obviously we're the Prisoner Creative Arts Project, so we'll be doing this so in artistic ways. We'll be doing so in direct ways. We'll be campaigning. We'll be marching. We'll be doing whatever the hell it is we have to do.
0: This is your weekly roundup. In March, the Southern Poverty Law Center releases its annual hate group report. Each year, the nonprofit civil rights organization releases the report on groups engaging in hateful political activity in the United States. This year, one group from Ann Arbor made the list, the American Freedom Law Center, or AFLC. The AFLC is a conservative law firm and was listed for its anti-Muslim stance. Ann Arbor lawyers Robert Muiz and David Yerushalami collectively founded the AFLC in January of 2012. Within the Southern Poverty Law Center, Yerushalami is listed as a key figure in the U.S. anti-Muslim hate movement and has been monitored by the center for the past several years. Following the center's released report, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel established a unit to investigate and prosecute Michigan organizations perpetuating hate crimes. Muiz is currently in the midst of ongoing litigation with Nessel and the Michigan Department of Civil Rights over the unit. The concern over AFLC anti-Muslim activity correlates with a spike in hate crimes across the state. According to the center's data last year, Michigan experienced a 6.5% increase in the amount of total active hate groups across the state. The Democratic National Convention recently announced that the second Democratic presidential debate will be hosted in Detroit on July 30th and 31st. DNC Chairman Tom Perez told the Detroit Free Press that the debate is being held in Detroit because of the character of the city. He says, quote, Detroit embodies the values and character of the Democratic Party. It's a city of grit and determination, a city that has gotten knocked down only to get back up stronger. Detroit is the perfect place for our party's second debate, end quote. In related news, the University of Michigan has submitted an application to host the presidential debate in 2020. According to an article from the university record, university president Mark Schlissel submitted a letter Monday to the Commission on Presidential Debates, a nonprofit organization that hosts the general election between the Republicans and the Democratic parties. As a next step, the university will have to submit a more detailed hosting plan. If selected, the university will have to pay a $2.5 million fee, along with other expenses for hosting the event and other needs for the debate. The commission will make its final decisions in late summer. University of Michigan alumni Lori Lightfoot won Chicago's mayor race Tuesday night, making her the first black woman to be elected to the position. With Lightfoot's victory, Chicago is now on track to become the largest U.S. city with an openly gay mayor. Lightfoot received her bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Michigan, graduating with honors in 1984, and later got her law degree from the University of Chicago. In November of 2018, About 4,300 people from Washtenaw County area applied for 600 spots on the Ann Arbor Housing Commission's Limited Housing Choice Voucher Waitlist, according to an MLive report. The high demand for vouchers reflects Ann Arbor's rising housing prices and the increasing desire for affordable housing solutions. A report from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development found home sales in Ann Arbor increased by 4 percent from January to December of 2015, with an average home sale price of $235,200. Currently, the median home value in the state of Michigan is around $150,000. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Daily Weekly. Again, I'm your host, Katherine Newhan. This episode was produced by audio engineer Ryan Cox, executive producer Katherine Newhan, Producers Sonia Vogel, John Kunin, and Josh Sadikoff. And special thanks to content creators Ivan Yao, Julia Maddie, and Shreya Dada.